0: To Redcast, another uh, in the Sport and Politics series with me, Alex Gordon, and Stuart McGill. Uh, In this series of podcasts, we're talking to guests about the sporting love of their lives. Uh, We're talking with sports fans, obsessives, players, writers, commentators, about the underlying dynamics that drive their sport. Why do sports fans identify so strongly with a club, a team, a player, which is, after all, a multi million or nowadays multi billion pound operation owned lock, stock, and barrel by corporate interests in hot to the banks, media moguls, and organized crime? What is it about their sport that gives meaning to the lives of so many people, and why? Uh, So, we're really pleased today. Uh, to be talking about uh, how sport is politics by other means. And this is reflected nowhere more clearly than in the episode we're about to discuss, the history of the famous, the notorious Bodyline Tour, uh, England's cricket tour of Australia in the winter of 1932 to 33. And we're absolutely delighted to be joined by our old mate, Uh, Hugh Kirkbride. Hugh is a trade unionist, uh, a lifelong Gloucestershire County Cricket Club aficionado uh, and uh, is often to be found frequenting uh, the benches in the county ground in Bristol. Uh, He's also uh, a man of uh, culture uh, and we're here to discuss with him uh, the important political history and the political consequences uh, of that test tour, which the MCC side made to Australia. So this is Redcast and uh, first question I'm just going to uh, put straight out there to Hugh Kirkbride uh, is, Hugh, can you just uh, explain for us the background to this tour? Uh, 1931, 32 is obviously uh, a period of, crisis in world capitalist history it's just after the wall street crash and we'll come on to the economic consequences of the crash uh, for the economies of britain and australia uh, and the british empire uh, later on but can you just talk to us about the background the cricketing background to the tour itself why it had become uh, such a sharp rivalry
1: england and australia were the first uh, Test cricket nations. Uh, The first Test match was in Melbourne in 1877 and I say that between 1877 and 1900 uh, it was a very early form of cricket. There were poor pitches, uh, low scores, there were one or two people who stood out like WG Grace but the standard of cricket wasn't really as we know it uh, today. From 1900 up until the First World War, there's what's known in cricket as the golden age, where pitches improved uh, considerably. That led to great leaps forward in techniques. Um, Many of the uh, cricketing shots that uh, in the NCC handbook uh, were developed at that time, uh, cuts and glances and so on and there were great leaps ahead in bowling techniques the development of swing bowling of googly bowling of uh to bowl cutters and so on so there were great uh, leaps forward there after the first world war um there was uh some very fast bowlers around which occasionally happened in the golden age but uh, not much more than one a team in 1921 australia toured england and their fast bowlers were called mcdonald and gregory who absolutely blew england away so for a few years uh, australia were dominant um, partly because of their fast bowling but then uh, as the pitches improved uh, scores grew and grew and in the late 20s there were some massive scores um, Bradman emerged in the 1928-29 series in Australia, which England won, Uh, but Bradman was just coming on the scene then. What really uh, caused concern for England was the tour in 1930 in England, where Bradman got 974 runs in the test series, at an average of one hundred and thirty nine point one four. So England were desperate to find a way of uh, controlling Bradman. The LBW law at the time allowed people to pad up outside off stump, so that uh, neutralised uh, some of the options, uh, particularly off spin. Um,
0: so can we op- just can we just break in here a second, you, and just yeah. ask. The question: What was it about Bradman's batting style that was so successful in that era? What what was his What was his strength, and why was he Why were the English bowlers unable to to find him out in that in that nineteen twenty nine nineteen thirty uh, period?
1: He, he had quite a flexible technique. He was very quick on his feet. He played the ball very late, um, so he wasn't. Uh, a predominantly forward or back batsman, as batsmen have been up until that time. Uh, it was very adaptable to the wickets. Bradman said uh, much later that Tendulka was the closest thing that he'd seen to uh, his, his own technique. So he was ahead of his time, really. And there have been very few people who've uh, emulated Bradman. Tendulka's probably the closest. Uh, but Steve Smith, in the last couple of years, has also been very close. If you look at film of Smith in the last few years and uh, Bradman during the Bodyline series, they batted pretty similarly.
2: I've got to say, here speaking as a, a non-cricket expert, but as a martial artist, what uh, a martial arts is a bunch of footwork. And Bradman's footwork, absolutely extraordinary. The bits I've seen, he got to speak in the right position every time. And he also seemed to have an ability to anticipate what the bowler was going to do. So we got himself in the right position and then threw a great technique. So the guy was extraordinary. No, he didn't like it up. And, but we'll get onto that a little bit later.
1: The leg theory, as it was called, which became known as bodyline, had been around for a while, but the, uh, the breakthrough for, for England was bowling leg theory very fast. So there weren't any restrictions on field positions. So you could put uh, a load of fielders on the leg side, but Larwood was the first one to bowl consistently fast using that sort of uh, approach. And he'd used it for knots for the previous couple of seasons. And Vos, who played for England on the Bodyline Tour was another Nottinghamshire bowler. So it had been developed there Jardine and one or two others had seen knots doing this, and they thought that it might be the uh, the weapon to use against uh, Australia. Uh, in the early part of the tour, it was it was tried against a, a president's team that Bradman was playing playing in, uh, and so they concluded that Bradman jumped about more than he did normally, and so uh,
0: they went with that in the tests. And of course, uh, it's it's. I mean, it's, it's, obvious, it's obvious to anyone who knows anything about cricket, but it's worth just saying that what exactly was the protection that these batsmen had? Uh, they had a, a pair of pads and a box and a bat. That was uh, the, the level of it. There's no such thing as thigh pads. There's uh, gloves, but they're effectively... Uh, not. They don't offer the protection uh, that cricket gloves would offer uh, today. Uh, and clearly, there's no head protection or chest protection at all, so we're talking about what sort of speeds is Larwood generating? Do we know what sort of speed he was generating with the ball? People reckon he was about ninety miles an hour at his best. And and this is on uh, and this is you're saying this is on pretty good wickets, or is it going to be on variable wickets uh, bowling in uh, bowling in a tour?
1: During during the test matches, it, it was interesting. There was there was a variety of. Uh, of wickets. And uh, the the most controversial one, it was, uh, in, there was inconsistent bounce at one end, which uh, contributed to some of the, uh, the problems, should we say. And that was in the third
0: test, which we'll come on to later. Okay, well, you've set out the uh, background to the tour itself. Um, can we talk Uh, a bit about the history of the rivalry between the two oldest test playing sides England and Australia or or I suppose in this case Australia and the MCC touring side and uh, as the England side was known when it toured Australia and uh, let's just talk about some of the underlying reasons for that rivalry of course there is the main underlying reason uh, which is that Australia is a colony uh, of, the, of the British Empire in its origin and uh, then a dominion uh, as it's later uh, reconstituted. And can we just uh, talk about the, the different ways in which the sport develops in England uh, compared to uh, in, the, in the dominion in Australia uh, and the different uh, developments that that leads to, such as, for example, a pressure, I think particularly in the Australian game, Uh, for more professionalism. Um, Would you you be able to tell us a bit about that?
1: I think in the 1860s, 1870s, uh, it was one way traffic and England controlled, the MCC controlled what happened in Australian cricket. The first divergence really was the Australian tour of England in 1880, which was the first proper tour. That was run as a joint stock venture. Uh, So all the Australian players bought an equal share in the the whole enterprise. And then they got an equal share of any profits at the end of it. Because they all had other jobs, they called themselves amateurs. Uh, But the MCC said that this joint stock arrangement made them professionals and wouldn't give them first-class status. And it was only towards the end of the tour that MCC agreed to a test match. Uh, And that was the only thing that enabled the tour to make a profit. So the Australian cricketers came out of it with a small profit, but they did get paid. Uh, The MCC was concerned about that. The president of the MCC, Lord Harris, said we don't want to encourage a class of semi-professionals. So the tensions uh, came to the surface in 1880 and uh, continued from... Thereon, on. Uh, the domestic structure also started to develop differently. There were leagues in Australia which were competitive. English cricket tended to be based around fixture lists which were not competitive but leagues were emerging in the north at the time. So there were differences uh, from 1880 onwards and they got exacerbated.
2: Uh,
0: uh, Sorry, sorry, Alex. No, 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 after after you.
2: you. Sorry, mate. I was just wondering, because looking at the history of this series, I do wonder sometimes why the Australians got so angry uh, about, well, getting beat and about the fact that the fastballers hit uh, players a couple of times because they did. Fastballers then thought, get the batsman a couple in the ribs. It was part of the game. The Australians got angry. And if I were to characterise it as... They got used to a certain level of success and couldn't handle getting beat. And one of the reasons why they won so often was because they were seen as being professional or semi-professional uh, compared to those nice English amateurs. Uh, there's a quote here from Neville Cardis, who I know that you're, you're not too keen on, Hugh, but Cardis says, uh, Cardis says here, sorry, the Australians brought to our Victorian pastime a terrible realism and cunning, these Australians were cricketers who had come quickly to rest ill in a country with no cant at all, no traditions or whatnot. They were not hampered by old customs. There's always been a certain do about Australian cricket, and an unashamed will to power with no may the best side win nonsense. From the public schools and the universities, English acquire characteristics of assurance, privilege and indifference to the crowd and the results. Characteristics not to be found in the play the Australians. So whenever the English started to show some signs of determination and an aggressive will to win, is that what wound the Australians up so much?
1: Well uh, as I've said in the past I think Cardus was a charlatan, I don't think he was watching some of the same matches as uh, the the people who were playing it. the way he romanticised his own team, Lancashire, uh, was uh, completely at odds with the uh, many professionals who played for Lancashire, indeed some of the amateurs who captained uh, Lancashire. So that determination to win was certainly there in uh, professional cricketers in uh, the north of England. Um, And the Australians, weren't as dour and mechanical as uh, Cardus said so I think Cardus was uh, trotting out the uh, the views of the cricket establishment and wanted to see everything through those rose-tinted spectacles but that wasn't the the reality either of cricket in the north of England or in Australia.
2: Okay good stuff but at the same time the Australian went had got used to beating england hadn't they so the bodyline defeat <coughs> was a bit of a shock for them
0: and and there's but also th- isn't there a sense Hugh, in which um, the c- cricket is kind of being used by different political forces in this period so on the one hand there's an emerging sense of australian uh, well nationalism uh, which is leading towards uh, pressure for more autonomy from the British Empire, more uh, self-assertion as a, as, as a nation, as, a, as, a, as an Australian nation, and that's expressed in newspapers um, like The Australian, uh, for example, but at the same time cricket is being used by the empire as this bond between the mother country and the colonies and dominions. A common cultural pastime a common uh, a, a common a common sport so that that's a, a kind of dual you know it has this dual characteristic um the sport of cricket in in the context of the british Empire at the time
1: Sport was important in, in australia there were more facilities for for sport because of the weather and uh, there, was, there was more space um, but it was the area in which uh, Australia could punch way above their weight. By 1930, the population of Australia was only about 3 million. uh, And the population of the UK at the time would have been about 35, 40 million. So it was a way in which Australia could uh, at least, well, be more than equal. And Australia also punched above their weight in numerous other sports as well um if you look at their performance in athletics at the time in swimming in tennis uh Australia punched massively above their above their weight and so that meant that sport became even more important in uh, the the Australian mind and cricket was
0: foremost amongst those sports could we talk about the actual events of the bodyline tour uh because I think, you know, there'll be a lot of people who are aware of the notoriety of the tour, but perhaps won't be aware of the, um, the actual matches, where they took place and where the main controversies uh, occurred. So do you want to just give us a sort of potted history of the tour itself?
1: The first test uh, started on the 2nd of December, 1932, and the subsequent tests were played after Christmas. In 1933, uh, Bradman missed the first test, which was uh, at Sydney, uh, but England went ahead with their plans for to use Bodyline anyway.
0: Was and, that due to uh, an, a, an injury to to Bradman? What was the reason for him missing the test?
1: Well, uh, it was said to be illness. Um, some said it was n- nervous exhaustion. Some said it was uh, a contractual dispute about his uh uh journalism um so it's not clear but the official so the explanation is.
0: so the contractual issue about his journalism would have been that um that would have effectively made him uh what a a, a professional one therefore what was what was yep. the reason for this contractual dispute he
1: The rules applied by the Australian Cricket Board were that if you were pursuing your primary uh, occupation, you could continue to do it. So Fingleton, who was a journalist and was actually paid full time by a a newspaper and and wrote about other things, was allowed to continue to be a journalist. Bradman, uh, for a couple of papers, only wrote about cricket. And it wasn't seen as his primary occupation. So there were disputes going back to 1928-29 where Bradman missed a test because of this argument about whether he was a a journalist or not. And that was still bubbling along in 1932-33. So in the first test, England went in uh, all guns blazing, using body line. Uh, Larwood and Vos took nine of the first, First innings wickets. Um, Australia uh, were only saved by an absolutely brilliant 187 by McCabe. Uh, England then piled on enormous number of runs, 524 in their first innings, and England almost won by an innings. They had to come back on uh, the fifth day for one more over just to get the one run needed. So. England uh, started as they should have done, which is to hit the opposition really hard right from the off and went one up. So that set the the tone and England were definitely on the front foot and Australia were shaken by the use of body line in that game. Um, In the second test, which was Melbourne, uh, England got a bit cocky about this, left out uh, their spinner and bowled four fast bowlers, which had never been done in a test match before. Um, but the, the wicket was slow and low, which completely neutralized uh, body line. So after a few overs, uh, Larwood gave up bowling body line and the others didn't bother either. So Australia won that game quite comfortably. And it was in third, Test at uh, Adelaide, the, the controversy about bodyline really uh, erupted. So Bradman had come back for the second and all the subsequent tests. Um, so at Adelaide, there was inconsistent bounce from uh, one end. And that's what led to a couple of the Australian players, Woodfall, who was the captain, and Oldfield, uh, being hit. But they weren't hit whilst a uh, body line was being bowled. Um, there was Oldfield, uh was injured because he got a top edge. Um, Woodford got in injured because the ball uh, jumped up off a of length, but it was conventional field with slip fields, fielders at the, at the time. So it was more a case of a poor pitch, but it was this third test that really set the cat among the pigeons in terms of the australian reaction Uh, the crowd really reacted because they'd been wound up by uh, events in the first test and started having a go at jardine and larwood and the the south african south australian uh, cricket administrators uh, felt obliged to do something about it so there was a a lot of fuss in the press a lot of fuss in the crowd and the South Australian board and effectively the uh, Australian board uh, sort of got bounced into reacting to it. Uh, it was a uh, the cable that was sent to Lords uh, wasn't a unanimous decision. It was the Secretary of uh, South Australia's board, it was also the Secretary of the Australian Board, uh, Jeans, Alan Jeans. And it was him and Harry Hodgetts, the uh, president of the South Australian Association, who really bounced the rest of the Australian board into doing it. And they agreed to send this cable uh, on a majority of eight to five. So it was a close run thing. Um, And the the cable, which I think we'll discuss in a bit more detail later, uh, was what really kicked off all the, the political ramifications. So England won that game uh, easily. Hugh, uh, yeah.
2: sorry mate, I just want to yeah. ask something here of, of a cricket in nature. Uh, did the crowd, the Adelaide crowd who were known to be relatively docile compared to those in Sydney and Melbourne, was it something to do with the way Jardine set the field for Woodfall immediately after his injury? Was it that that kicked the whole anger off?
1: Yeah, um, Woodfall was injured on the last ball of an over. So there was then a maiden from the other other end. So Woodfall was still on strike uh, at Larwood's next over. And then I think Jardine really wanted to wind the crowd up. Um, On the previous tour, Jardine had had a record of deliberately winding things up. So Jardine knew he was going to get a reaction, but he thought it would work in his favour. And it did make the Australians uncomfortable and and it led to uh, the notorious Cable. So in a way, Jardine got what he wanted out out of that. So he he was deliberately provocative and and he did that several times during during the tour.
0: And was that that the same occasion that one of the uh, MCC players, one of the England players, uh, refused to move to the leg side field, uh, citing that he believed it was against the spirit or the laws of cricket?
1: Well, th- there are two people who subsequently claimed that they, they wouldn't uh, field in the leg trap. Uh, one of them was Petordi, uh, who was, was dropped after the second test. Um, but there's plans and pictures showing Petordi uh, fielding in uh, the leg trap. The other one was uh, Gubby Allen, who said he'd have nothing to do with it. Um, Alan took five catches uh, in the series off Larwood. And the photograph, the films, show that at least two of those were in the leg trap. So, both Pertordi and Alan fielded in the leg trap. It was a bit
0: of a post hoc facto rationalisation.
2: Yeah, we'll talk about Gubby Allen a little bit later, probably. He seems like a very dubious character and a massively pompous class warrior liar. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. More on <laughs> the teaser here. So, uh, the next test match.
1: So, uh, the, the, the fourth test match was generally reckoned to be the best game of the uh, the series. Uh, that was at Brisbane. Um, because it was so hot and, and sticky, uh body line wasn't really bowled very much, um, it, it was pretty much neutralised by the pitch and the weather so it was all played pretty conventionally, um, there was some heroic batting by Eddie Painter in particular and by Maurice Leyland, uh, two English professionals and England won the game eventually but it was a very close game. The fifth game was dominated by spin. Larwood took some wickets uh, in in the game, but it was Verity in particular, who was uh, Yorkshire's slow left armour, who really won the game for England. Um, Only one uh, of England's wickets was taken by a fast bowler, so spin dominated uh, the game. Uh, Larwood was injured during that game. so there was very little body line in that so there were only really two test matches where body line played a significant part which was the first and the third but after the third test match once uh, the australian board had cabled the mcc the cap was out of the bag and uh, it was on the basis of those those two tests the first and the third that all the controversy arose
0: so the cable from the Australian board to the MCC is then uh, becomes public record, uh, but more importantly, it also elicits a response from the MCC, which is characteristically um, arrogant and uh, unflinching. Do you wanna just sort of talk about this toing and froing um, and, and the, the reaction of the MCC really to the um, Australian board's cable? Yeah, the key
1: thing was that uh, the Australian board used the word unsportsmanlike, um, which is, uh, so the MCC then offered to cancel the tour. Uh, The Australian board then realised that this would cost them a hell of a lot of money if the tour was cancelled. And so they had to start finding a way to climb down. became clear that the MCC uh, were consulting with uh, the government at the time so on the Australian side it went up to the government. By the time it got to Joe Lyons who was the Australian Prime Minister he was upset about, uh, he was concerned about upsetting the uh, British establishment because of the uh, enormous conversion loan and the enormous interest rates that were having to be uh, paid so he encouraged the australian board to uh back down um so the australian board hesitated should we say uh, and said that the the tour should go ahead the mcc then got back to uh the ace australian cricket board and said, may we accept this as a clear indication that the good sportsmanship of our team is not in question. So that really uh, skewered the uh, Australian board and they they had to back down. The political guidance to the MCC had been given by the colonial secretary. Uh, And Alex, I'm sure you'll
0: know who that was at the time. Indeed, J.H. Thomas, the, yeah, He uh, was General Secretary of the National Union of Railwaymen. Yeah, <laughs> and an utter shit.
1: <laughs> Former councillor in Swindon as well.
0: Yeah, indeed, indeed, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah we, could, we could do a podcast just on the life and times and disgraceful behaviour of J.H. Thomas, class traitor. I've got a couple of cricket
2: questions here. Yeah. You, but I want to ask a couple. Um, first one, I think, is relatively clear-cut. Did body line make any difference to the result of this test series?
1: I'd say yes. In what way? In, 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 the, in, the, in the first match, because England got off to a real flyer um, by using body line, particularly in the first innings of the first first test. And uh, Apart from McCabe, whose innings was uh, Stokes-like, I'd say, McCabe made 187 During the time he was in, all the others combined uh, made 91. For the last wicket, and he was the last man out, uh, he got 51 out of 55. If McCabe hadn't scored that innings, they'd have been all out for about 130, 120, 130. In the end, they got 360. So everybody else, apart from McCabe, uh, was absolutely blown away by the body line and they folded in the second innings as well so I think it was that uh, initial punch uh, which won England the series so towards was... the end towards the end of the series the Australian selection went all over the place um, it was one of these uh, I think they played 24 uh, well it's well over 20 uh, different players uh, during the five games England only used 14. Uh, so would you sh- say it was it's primarily
2: easy. a psychological impact, and I'm asking here particularly about the impact on Bradman. You mentioned earlier when Larwood got injured, I think he broke his foot, quite a serious injury, but Jardine made him stay on the field and uh, finish off his over, and then didn't he make him feel that cover point or something where Bradman yep. could see him? And it wasn't yep. until Bradman was out that he let Larwood go off because he felt that Bradman was scared of Larwood.
1: Yeah, that's that, that's right. It was all part of uh, Jardine's psychological warfare, uh, in the same way that uh, putting a bodyline field against Woodfall in the third test uh, had been. So he really wanted to grind them into the dirt. Yeah, he really
2: didn't like Bradman, did he? Mind you, I get the impression not too many people were keen on Bradman on his own
1: side. No, there were there were a lot of. Uh, people who who didn't like Bradman, and there were factions within the Australian side. Uh, There was particular uh, difficulty, should we say, between uh, the Catholics, and they saw themselves as Irish, the people like uh, O'Reilly, McCabe, O'Brien, Fingleton, uh, who who were the ringleaders of, of that particular group. And then on the other side, there were uh, the Masonic lot, which included Bradford, Bradman, Ponsford, Oldfield. And there were two very clear factions and it wasn't split along state lines and it wasn't even on class lines. It it was uh, particularly to do with the Irish Catholics and and the Masons. There were some people who weren't involved in, in either. Uh, faction, but there was a lot of bad feeling. Um and indeed in the third test when there was a, a leak of something that Woodfall had said. Uh Bradman, who probably made the leak, almost certainly did, um, that he blamed Fingleton. Fingleton blamed Bradman, probably correctly, uh, and it was Fingleton who was dropped. Mm. Uh, Fingleton had got a pair in that in that game. So uh, perhaps it, uh, there was some justification for dropping him, but Fingleton certainly paid paid the price of that because uh, Bradman was the golden boy, uh, and that increased the, the resentment amongst the uh, the Catholics
0: in the team. Well, that's
2: interesting. I hadn't heard of that particular angle before. Maybe that's, that's very
0: interesting. And, and can we read across when you say Masons, we're talking uh, Protestant. Yes. And what, yeah, okay, so it was a, a religious split um, in the Australian side. Well, what what had also happened in,
1: in Australia is that uh, Freemasonry was very big in the trade unions. Um, the Plumbers Union, in, well, in, initially they were different unions in different states, but the Plumbers Union had always been uh, dominated by uh freemasonry and this goes right into the australian side if you look at um arthur mailey who was a great australian leg spinner uh, in the 1920s he was replaced by uh, o'reilly really um but mailey was a proud member of the plumbers union and was a freemason and this carried on right into the the 60s bill lorry who was captain uh of Australia in the late 70s, was a proud member of the Plumbers Union, kept his tools, kept on paying his subs and so on, but he was a Freemason uh, as well. So, this association with plumbing and Freemasonry uh, seems to go throughout Australian cricketing history.
2: That's interesting. I can feel one more podcast about Freemasonry and sport coming on here. Right? Oh, I don't absolutely. Yeah. Series. Uh, Hugh, I've got one more um, cricketing question. This was a timeless test, in that yeah, they played on until somebody won. Uh, that, of course, forced teams to actually uh, play and go ahead and try and throw some strokes. Had this been a test series like it is now, where there is a time limit, would the result have been different, do you think?
1: I think only there was only one game where the timeless nature really made a difference, and that was. Uh, the third one which went on for six days uh, and that allowed England to pile up 412 in the second innings so England ended up winning that game by 338 runs so they probably didn't need that many uh, but it was the the fact that it was that they wanted to be absolutely sure so they'd set a uh, Australia 532 to win which is uh, nobody needs that that many runs so that was the only one Um, the fourth test just went into uh, the sixth day Um, the others were all over and done with it within the the five days Um, the first test was almost over within four days Um, and the, the others uh, went it part of the way through the, the, the fifth oh, day? Oh, I
2: get that. I'm just wondering, basically, as a as a non cricket expert, do teams play differently, or would teams play differently uh, in a timeless test compared to one where they can just uh, dig in there and play for a draw?
1: Yes, it goes slower. Uh, a, a lot of the series, the the run rate was very slow. Well, by by present standards, uh, so it was normally between two and two and a half runs per over but that was the tempo of uh test cricket at the time even in the 1960s uh that was uh the norm and it's only been in the last 20 years where australia have upped the rate to sort of closer to four uh and over which is partly a legacy of uh, one day cricket i think that people find new ways of uh, creating scoring opportunities so it did make a difference in, in one of the tests, but timeless tests uh, were given a very... The, the final nail in their coffin really was the game in 1939 in Durban, where uh, the England team uh, had, had gone into the eighth or ninth day and the team had to leave to get back to Cape Town to get their boat back to England. And so, after eight or nine days, it was still abandoned as a draw. After that, nobody bothered.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I've got one last question for you both, actually, here. Uh, Am I alone? Despite the fact Douglas Jardine is a class enemy, etc., I can't help but like the guy and would have liked to go for a beer with him.
1: Jardine was... uh, seen as a very prickly person at the time but there were several of the players who uh, would see him after the second world war he died fairly young he died in his 50s uh, i think but sort of in the 40s and the, the early 50s several of his old players uh, would go for a meal with him and uh, he'd be quite jovial and talk quite openly about cricket and uh, his enthusiasms and so on. So he was shy to an extent, but it, he was—he did have a sense of humour um, and he actually liked, liked the game, but he was um, a bit uptight about something. So it, it took a while to get him to relax. And I think as he got older, it, it, he relaxed more. Well, so, so he was given- prickly.
2: I mean okay, given the Australian arrogance about their sporting achievements, anyone who takes on the Australians and wins, I've got a certain sympathy for. And of course, he was very good to Larwood. Larwood really liked the guy and he admired him for his ruthlessness. And uh, they stayed good mates afterwards. So there's a lot of good personal qualities about the guy.
1: The, the, the team, uh, were apart from Alan, uh, were, were completely behind him. Uh, Sutcliffe, who was the senior professional, so, almost vice-captain. Uh, I'll just read out the quote from Sutcliffe at the end of the tour. His fighting power was a wonderful inspiration to us all. He planned for us, cared for us, he fought for us on that tour, and he was so faithful in everything that he did that we were prepared on our part
0: to do anything we could for him. So, so just to uh, remind us, what happened to Jardine after the tour? Was he then... Uh, but he was he was basically uh, used as a scapegoat by the MCC, was he not? He he
1: continued as England captain in 1933 uh, when West Indies were touring England. Uh, England the West Indies fast bowlers then used body line against England, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think England England still won the won the series. Uh, it was a very early tour from west indies um, so they were very inexperienced side but they did have a couple of good fast bowlers uh, the following winter 33 34 england toured india and jardine was still captain there and uh, in england won that game won that series as well so australia were touring in 1934 and that was when Jardine was was dumped, um, because they, they, they wanted to find somebody else because they didn't want another incident with the Australians. So Jardine was sacrificed immediately before the 1934 series.
2: And that brings us to the end of this first part of the podcast. In part two, we'll talk a little bit more about the politics behind the tour, and the very interesting imperial context. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Cheers. Three, two, nothing wrong with
0: me. Three, nothing wrong with me. Four, nothing wrong with me. One, something's got to get Two, something's got to get Three, something's got to get up. No! Let the body set the, 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 the Let the body set the Let the body set them.
2: Let the body send the rope Bye, set them go, let the